ago, a Silicon Valley entrepreneur and a humanist chaplain at Stanford, yes, you did hear me right, they crowdsourced a secular alternative to the Ten Commandments. They offered prize money for winners, they appointed a panel of judges to select the best entries, and the result is a secular Ten Commandments. Let me read them for you, the Ten Commandments of our age, as it were. One, be open-minded and be willing to alter your beliefs with new evidence. Two, strive to understand what is most likely to be true, not believe what you wish to be true. Three, the scientific method is the most reliable way of understanding the natural world. Four, every person has the right to control of their body. Five, God is not necessary to be a good person or to live a full and meaningful life. Six, be mindful of the consequences of all your actions and recognize that you must take responsibility for them. Seven, treat others as you would want them to treat you and can reasonably expect them want to want to be treated. Think about their perspective. Eight, we have the responsibility to consider others, including future generations. Nine, there is no one right way to live. Ten, leave the world in a better place than you found it. This is the wisdom of our age. As I read it, I see fine things in some cases. Leave the world in a better place than you found it. That's a good intention as far as it goes. But who defines better? Who gets to fill in the gaps of what that actually means and looks like? I see morality according to your own preferences. There is no one right way to live. I see the sovereignty of the individual overall. Every person has the right to control of their body. I see contradiction. There is no one right way to live. Leave the world in a better place than you found it. I just want to ask, which one is it? You know, it, it's, it's right to leave the world in a better place than you found it, but then there's no right way to live. Which one? I also see vestiges of biblical morality. Treat others as you would want them to treat you. That's, that's Jesus. This is the wisdom of our age. But God has provided something better for us, brothers and sisters. In contrast to changing, subjective, contradicting cultural preferences presented as truth, he offers us unchanging, true, coherent commands flowing from his gracious, just and eternal nature. Today we begin our sermon series on the Ten Commandments, and each week we're going to look at one command. We're going to seek to understand the command in and of itself. Like, what is the command? What does it mean? Who was it given to? How does it apply to them in their context? And we'll look at the command in light of Christ. How does Christ's coming and fulfillment of the law impact our understanding of this command? And then finally, through Christ, we'll seek to apply each command to our lives today. 
So if you're not already there, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus is the second book in the Bible. Open it up to Genesis. Turn one book to the right. You're there. Thank you, Wes, for that excellent reading of of Exodus 19 and 20 for us earlier. I wanted you to have that context. We're going to focus ourselves on three verses this morning. So pick up in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. First command is right there. You shall have no other gods before me. I have three questions to start. Who is this command given to? Who gave the command? And why was it given? So, who is the command given to? Well, it was given to Israel. I am the Lord your God who brought you, Israel, out of the land of Egypt. It was given to Israel. And we see Israel's situation here, just delivered from Egypt. They'd been in Egypt for 400 years, brutalized in Egypt, enslaved in Egypt. Pharaoh was so despotic that he systematically murdered all Israelite boys so the nation wouldn't be able to continue. They'd just die off without being able to propagate. And so God delivers them. He enlists Moses to tell Pharaoh, free the people and Of course, Pharaoh refuses, but God then performs miracle after miracle. He brings judgment on Pharaoh until Pharaoh has no other choice but to release them. They leave Egypt a free people, and we find them today just three months out from this deliverance. God has brought them to himself to a mountain, Mount Sinai, and he reveals himself to them now. He speaks to them now, and he tells them how their relationship is going to work. Which brings me to my second question. Who gave this command? God. This commandment is not from a committee. Praise God. It's not crowdsourced. It's not the result of a workplace survey. It's not the Israelites getting together and telling God how they'd like to relate to him. It is from God to his people. And we see two incredible things about who God is. He is almighty. To say, I brought you out of the house of slavery is to remind them That he is the all-powerful God. There is no power greater than Egypt. Standing atop all the nations of the world was Egypt. And empowering Egypt were the supposed gods she served. Like Osiris, whose bloodstream was believed to be the Nile River. Like Heket, the frog goddess of birth. Like the sun god, Ra, whom Pharaoh was thought to embody. Listen, every part of Egyptian life was believed to have a god behind it. That they served and placated in order to gain its favor. Egyptians god, Egyptian gods governed fertility, and crops, livestock, health. But 
God showed all of those gods to be no God at all. Figments of man's imagination. They thought Osiris' bloodstream was the water of the Nile, and so God turned the Nile into blood. They thought the sun, uh, God, gave them light, and so God turned the lights out on the sun. He destroyed their crops, their cattle. He decimated their health. Every single miracle revealed the almighty nature of God and the death of the firstborn showed that he himself is sovereign over life. This is the God who gives this command. Genesis tells us he created the world out of nothing. Spoke it into existence. He created man and woman Animal life, plant life, the sun, the moon, the Milky Way, the galaxies our telescopes can't even see yet. And he is sovereign over all of it. Nature is under his command. He parted the Red Sea so Israel could cross over. Life and death are under his command. Every firstborn of Israel was spared. Every firstborn of Egypt Israelites know this. It's fresh on their minds. He is almighty. And he is gracious. What has God done? He's delivered them. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen their affliction. I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them. Israel couldn't free herself. Israel couldn't do that. She's in bondage. She needed to be delivered. And God delivered her. This almighty God. Uses his almighty power. Graciously. Think for just a second about how right it is for God to give this command. You shall have no other gods before me. Here's fact. I got all these new sayings since I was gone, so get ready. So, like, you probably already know this, but anything, like, everybody just says facts, okay? So, here's facts, okay? We are allergic. Ethan's like, I've been saying that all the time, Dad. I know. I, I give you credit. Here's the fact. We are allergic to be told what to do. Human nature doesn't like to be told what to do. If it's our idea, we're cool with it. If it's not our idea, but we agree, we'll put up with it. But if it's not our idea and it restricts us in some way we don't like, we buck and justify it. Who is God to tell me what to do? Who is God to tell you what to do? He's creator. He is the one who made you. Does not the one who made you have rights over you? Is it not right to say, you owe your allegiance to me? Of course. And then even more, Christian. He is the one who saved you. 
saved you from slavery to sin, saved you from the abusive power of the wicked ruler of this world to whom Pharaoh points. He is both our creator and our deliverer. We are twice his. Oh, he has the right to command us what to do, doesn't he? He does. And this leads me to another question. Why was the command given? And here's, here's the answer in a very simple phrase. It was given for Israel's good. That's really the case. Think about it. They have been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. Polytheistic, big word for many gods. Polytheistic, many gods Egypt for 400 years. What do you think is most natural for them to do? It's to worship false gods. That's what's most natural. But that's not going to work with God, the true God who created them, who saved them. And so now he commands them, you are to worship me alone. Not only because that is right, but so that their relationship with him flourishes. And so we see that this is actually for Israel's good, which presses against another truth of our age. Facts. We are allergic to restrictions. We think anything limiting our freedom to do whatever is bad. Now listen, the reality is that no relationship flourishes without rules. No employee-boss relationship works without rules. No husband-wife relationship works without rules. In fact, we can kind of flesh it out beyond relationship in an expansive sense Restrictions, constraints, boundaries, rules are for our good. Try to write a paper. Try to write an academic paper without giving yourself the boundaries of an outline. At least sketched out in your mind. Try to do it. It'll be a train wreck. Try to identify what color paint to paint your living room without giving yourself the boundary of picking between four swatches you've brought home. How chaotic would it be if you didn't restrict yourself? Say, I don't want to restrict myself at all. I'm going to bring home all a thousand. That'd be a nightmare. Your husband would leave and never come back. (laughs) This command is restrictive. It's a boundary. And that's for our good. Well, what is the command itself? We've, we've stated it, but let's make sure we understand it. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. This is not admitting that there are other gods. Hey, Israel, there's lots of other gods out there. Just make sure I'm first in line. It's not what God's saying. He proved three months ago that there is no other god but him. He is demanding their exclusive allegiance. You belong to me. You will not give yourself to any other. You are mine and mine alone. We see an equivalent idea in the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's the essence of the first command. This is an exclusive relationship. 
Israel belongs to God. Israel belongs to God alone. He has created her. He's saved her. He's brought her to himself. She's his wife. And just like a husband wouldn't tolerate even the thought of his wife having lovers on the side, so God won't tolerate his people giving themselves to anyone but him. Only have eyes for me, says our God, our lover. By the way, the first commandment is, is really the umbrella under which all of the other commands rest. So, if the first command is kept, no other commands will be broken. If his people give themselves to him as he commands, they actually won't break any of the other commandments. And on the other side of the coin, if they break the other commandments, what that means is that in some sense they've broken this one beforehand. So, how does Israel do? Does she carry out this command? Initially, yes, you're laughing. That's good. That's good. Initially, it looks promising. Exodus 19, Israel promises, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. The Ten Commandments are given in 20. They're teased out in 21 through 23. And in this very beautiful covenant ratification ceremony in 24, Israel again promises, all the words the Lord has spoken we will do. But she doesn't. Her history is a long and storied one consisting of one overarching theme. She gives herself to the so-called gods of the nations in addition to the one true God of heaven and earth. It happens immediately. After receiving the Ten Commandments, Moses goes up to the mountain where God gives him instructions about the tabernacle. He's gone 40 days. The people say, where's Moses? He's supposed to go before us to the promised land. So let's make God's who will go before us. They fashion a golden calf. They hold a celebration to the Lord, thinking everything is okay. God in His grace forgives them, but the trajectory doesn't look good, and it stays not looking good. When the covenant was renewed under Joshua, Joshua told them, put away the gods that your father served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord, Joshua 24. Years later, Elijah on Mount Carmel would tell them the same thing. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. Why would these men say things like this? Because Israel continually broke the first commandment. She always, always, always wanted to have God and. The Lord is fine, but we want the Lord and Baal. The Lord is fine, but we want the Lord and Asherah. They were quite happy to have the Lord in their lives, but they were not willing to give him the exclusive allegiance that he demands and deserves. Everywhere Israel went, from Egypt to Canaan, ultimately to exile in Assyria and Babylon, she broke the first commandment. Instead of an exclusive allegiance to God so that she shines like a light to the nations, instead of embracing her God-given, gloriously different uniqueness from the nations around her, she consistently conformed herself to the nations around her and their so-called gods. Here's how God describes it. I'm going to read from Jeremiah 2. Don't turn there. Just just. Just listen to this word from God. This is his overarching description of Israel. Therefore I contend with you, says the Lord. 
and with your children's children I will content. For cross to the coasts of Cyprus and see. Or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has ever been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Your evil will chastise you. Your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. For long ago I broke your yoke. I burst your bonds, referring to him freeing them from Egypt. But you said, I will not serve him. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bowed down like a whore. How can you say I am not unclean? I have not gone after the bales. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there. A wild donkey used to the wilderness in her heat, sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her need weary themselves. In her month, they will find her. As a thief is shamed when caught, so the house of Israel shall be shamed. They, their kings, their officials, their priests, their prophets, all of them. Who say to a tree, you are my father. And to a stone, you gave me birth. For they have turned their back to me and not their face. And in the time of their trouble, they will arise and they will say, save us. But where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in your time of trouble. For as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah. Did Israel keep the first commandment? Hardly. Immediately and perpetually, she treated the first commandment more like a suggestion from an insignificant internet troll than from the Almighty God. Which brings us to Jesus. If Israel won't keep the first commandment, if Israel will not, Love the Lord her God with all of her heart, with all of her soul, and with all of her mind and strength. If Israel will not be different from the nations around her in a light of God's truth, who will? Jesus. We need to leave Mount Sinai this morning. And we need to travel in time to a different mountain. The Mount of Transfiguration. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 17? Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 17. Matthew 17 verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. 
And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him, and Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and they were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now, why did I have you read these verses? Because they make it plain to us that we have to think about the first commandment. And all the commandments, for that matter. Through Christ. The God whose voice thundered at Sinai now thunders again and directs us to listen to his son. Did you notice that Moses and Elijah were here? Moses, representative of the law. Elijah, representative of the prophets. They are here because all the law and all the prophets are all testifying to us about Jesus Christ. They all point to Him, and they are all fulfilled by Him. And so, from this side, this side of the incarnation, we can't merely look at the first command and apply it directly to ourselves. We must look at the first command through Christ. And so let's do that and ask two questions. First, how does he fulfill it? And then second, how are we to obey it in light of his coming? Think about the first with me. You ever listen to a piece of musical that's just beautiful, but it is performed like a train wreck? So, I I don't know, does anybody remember American Idol? Some of those performances, it's like their, their mom needed to tell them, you just can't sing, sweetheart, you know? But they didn't tell them. So they, did, they would go and they would perform and then Simon Cowell would make them feel like a goober because they were, were a goober. The piece was beautiful and it was a train wreck and it was embarrassing as you watched them try to perform it. What does it have to do with anything? I'm glad you asked. That's like watching Israel try to obey the first commandment. It was a train wreck and we cringed as we watched her and listened to her and read Jeremiah 2. Oh, it's terrible. But then as we watch Christ, oh, it's beautiful. Even from a young age, Jesus had such clarity that his allegiance to his father was above all. One time when his parents didn't understand his actions and they asked him what he was doing, he said, don't you know, I must be about my father's business. And that's how he lived his entire life, about his father's business. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Hebrews 10, 7. That was his heart. Undivided allegiance. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6.38 My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. John 4.34 
Jesus' central operating principle was the first commandment. And he never wavered. When the devil said to him, I will give you all the kingdoms of this world if you'll simply bow down and worship me. Jesus said, be gone. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. That's beautiful. And it's an outworking of the first commandment. And nowhere do we see his allegiance to the Father on brightest, brighter display than the cross. Jesus knew his Father's will for him. He knew it from day one. He knew he was to die upon the cross. He knew that. He told his disciples again and again he was going to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests. He'd die, he'd rise again. And you see him wrestling with this reality the night before his crucifixion. The gospel writers portray the event with such poignancy, capturing the agony our Lord Jesus felt, knowing what awaited him as he goes to pray, as he asks the disciples to pray for him. What does he pray? Oh, Father, if it is possible, let this cup, the cup of suffering, the cross, let it pass by me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. My uncle coached basketball in Texas for over 20 years, and he had a saying, facts. Sports don't build character. Sports reveal character. In other words, what my uncle saw in 20 years of coaching was that the crucible that certain situations in sports puts you in reveals what is in your heart. Brothers and sisters, there has never been, nor will there ever be, a greater crucible than the cross. Jesus Christ knows that this cross awaits him. He knows that in a few short hours, he will be beaten beyond human recognition, stripped down, nailed by his hands and feet to an instrument of torture, and die a criminal's death. And why does he go through it? For many reasons. But the one not to miss right now is the first commandment. Because Jesus Christ's allegiance is to God and God alone. Jesus Christ gave himself entirely and exclusively to his Father. He, more than any other, he perfectly embraced the first commandment and lived it every second of every day of his entire life until the end. He fulfilled the first commandment. Think not that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, he said. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. Israel was faithless to the first commandment. Jesus fulfilled the first commandment. In Jesus, God says, this command has been fulfilled. And so what are we to do? How does this impact us? Here's where we are. 
We worship God alone by giving our worship and devotion to Jesus Christ alone. Remember the God who came down on Sinai said, Worship me alone. He has now come down on the Mount of Transfiguration and he has said, Listen to my son. So what has his son said? That he is the one mediator between God and man, 1 Timothy 2.5. That he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, Hebrews 1.3. Jesus is the one before whom everyone will ultimately bow down in worship, Philippians 2. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. John 14. This means that if we want to find acceptance with God, we must turn to Christ wholeheartedly. Listen, if you're here this morning as a non-Christian, please listen to me. God is. He is. He is the creator over all. He is the ruler over all. He made you. He has rights over you. He demands and deserves your worship. But you, just like me in time past, and just like every Christian in time past, you at this point in time see him wrongly. Maybe you see him as an impersonal blob of a high power. Maybe you see him as a cold, authoritarian figure who wants to bog you down with a bunch of thou shalt nots. Maybe you see him as an old school belief of your parents or grandparents. Maybe you see him as satisfied with general good behavior as defined by you or society, your friends. But he is none of those things. He is almighty God who wants all of your devotion and he deserves that, but you haven't given any of it to him. And you deserve his judgment. You deserve his wrath. Not for any one thing in particular, in fact. It's not that God looks down from heaven and he sees that one thing you've done wrong. It's that he looks down from heaven and he sees that your entire life is being lived apart from him. And that is what is just so wrong. But he has not brought his judgment on you. He brought his judgment upon his son. Unbelievable thing is that the son came and fulfilled the first commandment. He lived the life of loving God that you should have lived. And on the cross, he died the death that you deserve to die. And this is actually all part of God's plan. 
He sent Jesus to obey the command in our place. He sent Jesus to die in our place. And if you will turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, then God will forgive you. All of your rebellion, your life lived outside, apart from Him, all of it, He will forgive you because Christ has taken your punishment upon Himself. And more than that, He counts you as having obeyed the first commandment perfectly. Because he credits Christ's perfect obedience to your account. Turn to Christ this morning wholeheartedly. Give up your false gods of love for self, love of pleasure, love of this age's loose conception of morality. Give up your independence. Give up your autonomy. Give up your false belief that there is no God, or if there is, He hasn't made Himself known. Give up your prideful assertion that you are a good person. Give it up. Give it up. Give it up. Come to the foot of the cross as one who knows you've broken the first commandment all of your life. And receive forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ. The first commandment is obeyed by turning to Christ wholeheartedly. And then, the first commandment is obeyed by living and loving Him exclusively. So brothers and sisters, dear Christians... Our exclusive allegiance to God is not satisfied by faith exercised at one point in time. It is satisfied by faith exercised over our lifetime. We dare not think that we have come to the foot of the cross, received His grace and mercy, to be freed to live a life however we define it to be. So I just want to speak to something directly. It's not just human nature that has an allergic reaction to rules. Christians do too. We love to focus on the grace of God in the gospel. We love to focus on the grace and mercy in the gospel. And we should. They're beautiful. But you know what else is beautiful about the gospel? It doesn't just free us from the penalty of the law. It sets us free to obey the law from the heart. Don't forget the essence of the new covenant sealed by Christ's blood is that the eternal law of God is written on your heart and we actually obey it in life. This means that Christians, your life will not look like the Israelites. Their obedience to God was a train wreck. It was a joke. They didn't cling to God and God alone. They wanted God and everything else about the gods that the nations had to offer. That's not us. That can't be us. And so do you know what we have to do? We have to fight to give our allegiance to God over all. And that's not easy because the gods of this age are demanding to be worshipped. That's why if this hasn't happened to you yet, it will. Your boss is eventually going to put a pride sticker on your desk and tell you to wear it. 
And you're going to need to explain respectfully and kindly that you can't. Because to do so would break the first commandment through Christ. Your boss is eventually going to tell you that you need to put your preferred pronouns on your email. And you're going to need to explain respectfully that you can't. Because be clear, dear Christian, to do so is to give credence to the lie that says you can be whatever you want to be in God's world and you can't. You see, exclusive devotion is hard. And it's hard because our hearts want to draw us away at times too. I know we give a hearty amen to the cultural pressure, but we have our own hard things to deal with. Our own hearts lead us to prioritize things other than the worship of God first and foremost. Do you consider how you spend your money and how you give or don't give to be a matter reflecting your commitment to the first commandment to love God overall? Do you consider your Sunday morning schedule and what you allow to encroach or not encroach and being here, do you view that as an issue of obedience to God and God alone? Do you view your life in terms of exclusive devotion to God and God alone? And our own hearts can tell us lies about God that we have to identify as lies in devotion to the true God. Our own heart could tell us things like, my God wouldn't allow me to have cancer. That's, that's your own conception of God. Not God Himself. You could say, my God would never not save my children. You don't know that. That's not a promise from Scripture. That's a God you've created. Thus you've broken the first commandment. Do you see how tricksy the first commandment is? And how broad and deep it goes? We're going to think about these things more next week. Next week we're going to look at idolatry. Second commandment forbids idolatry and we tend to think about idolatry as a wooden image that some person worships. And that's true. But idolatry is anything that competes for our affection and devotion. Anything can turn into an idol. Money, pleasure, sports, retirement, career, health. Just keep on going. Now here's what I want you to do. I want you to ask God In fact, would you do this all week? Would you ask God to be gracious to you and reveal to you where other things, other gods of your own making, are competing for a spot in your life that belongs only to Him? Ask Him to reveal to you where you're soft on obedience to Him where you're soft on giving Him His due. Ask Him to work in you, to prepare you, to strengthen you, to love Him more truly by identifying those things that compete with Him in your heart. 
Ask Him to do that. Because He demands and deserves all of our worship. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank You. We thank You that You are a God that deserves to be worshipped. We thank You that You are a God worthy of our worship. And we thank You that You have sent Jesus to die in our place so that You look at us and see righteous people because of what Christ has done. Oh God, because we are saved, help us to fight for exclusive devotion to you. That you might be glorified and that our relationship with you might flourish. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.